and welcome to this fourth episode of the Global Growth Strategies podcast. My name is Simon Haig, and I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host, Henry Wang. Hello, Henry. How are you again? Hi, Simon. Thank you. Overcoming COVID has incurred unprecedented human and economic costs globally. Unlike previous economic crises, which are normally caused by financial bubbles, this health pandemic is a global shock, causing negative economic impacts and also huge supply chain failures. Experts have warned that this isn't just a temporary hiccup, but there are small serious warnings for something more serious. There are some countries pushing for fast recovery and return to business as usual with some quick fixes. However, there are also many strong drives from various global leaders to build back better with sustainable improvements. A good example is the recent call by the United Nations World Economic Forum and the G20 and B20 on building back better post-COVID with international collaborations. Thank you. Thanks, Henry. And uh, geopolitically, this crisis has, from a medical research perspective at least, underlined the huge value of global collaboration. We're witnessing the development and adaptation of life-saving technologies and massive research into treatments. We're experiencing perhaps not seen before, at least since the AIDS crisis of the 1980s, sharing of scientific journals, genome sequencing data, clinical trials, bringing together thousands of scientists, medics, companies, and researchers globally to facilitate greater international collaboration and understanding. Henry and I are conducting a series of global podcasts with distinguished international thought leaders from both the West and the East. These thought leaders will be discussing key topical issues, including healthcare, as we'll be discussing today, uh, youth, innovation, climate change, media, leadership, culture, and more. Uh, we hope that these open exchanges of views with international thought leaders from both the West and the East should help foster greater international understanding and cooperation. We're also delighted that all episodes will be featured on all leading podcast channels, YouTube, social media, and more. Thank you, Simon. And I'm very glad that uh, Sally and Nick are with us today. Welcome, Sally. It is wonderful that you are a surgeon and also honorary clinical assistant professor with the Hong Kong Hospital Authority. Maybe you can give us an overview of your distinguished career today because I'm sure they're all very interested. Thank you, Henry. I'm currently associate consultant in the Department of Surgery, North District Hospital. I obtained my Bachelor of Medicine and Bachelor of Surgery from the Chinese University of Hong Kong in 2005. I underwent six years general surgical training in Prince of Wales Hospital, and I became a fellow of Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh and fellow of the Hong Kong Academy of Medicine in 2012. I then further specialized in the gastrointestinal surgery with great interest in intervention and endoscopy. I received my post-fellowship overseas training in Seoul, Korea, including minimal invasive surgery in Yonsei University and the endoscopic ultrasound signaling in the 
Asa Medical Center. In addition, I'm interested in clinical nutrition, clinical research and teaching. That's why I'm also helping as an honorary clinical assistant professor of the Department of Surgery at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Wow, Sally, that's really very impressive uh, career. But also congratulations, you've just been invited to be the president of the Rotary Club of Taipo. That's a real honor because that's a really leading club in Hong Kong. So what are your key activities and aims during Thank the you year? Thank you very much, Henry, for introductions. Yes, I'm honored to be the president of the Rotary Cup of Taipo for the year 2020 to 21. And I have joined the Rotary for six years. In fact, I've been a Rotaractist two years before I became a Rotarian. From my personal experience, I deeply understand there is a big transition from being a Rotaractor to a Rotarian. A good succession plan is the utmost important as the future is our younger generation. So I'm devoted in creating a platform for young professions to strengthen their leadership and to serve those in need in our community. With the support from the club board directors and members, we are going to charter a new Rotary Satellite Club with our community-based Rotaractors as a core member at the end of this month. That is the 31st of October, 2020. Regarding the key activities in our club service project, we have three main focuses. First, is to increase health awareness. Second, to promote peace. And third, to preserve planet Earth. COVID-19 pandemic is a public health emergency, which has set an alarm to us on the importance of public health. The definition of health according to WHO is a state of complete physical, mental, social well-being, and not merely absence of disease or infirmity. Whereas public health is defined as the science and art of preventing disease, prolonging life and promoting health through the organized effort of the society. Rotary is an international service organization which could play an important role in public health disease prevention. Our club has donated and distributed thousands of masks and sanitary necessities in fighting against the COVID-19 virus, targeted at the vulnerable group of people, especially elderly living in the residential home care. And early this year, our club also support a global grant project in Mandela, Italy, by supplying 200,000 of level two and three masks to the hospital healthcare workers, as well as the elderly home. From my perspective, with the growing aging population worldwide, the concept of empowering elderly with healthy aging would be a better approach in the context of the public health. I'm a very strong advocate of prevention better than cure. And I'm going to lead our club to promote and build a healthy elderly community with different NGOs. Whereas mental health and peace are closely related, every Rotarian is a peace builder. And this is pretty powerful as we have 120 million Rotarians globally. The peace we are talking about is positive peace. We focus on how to bring the positive energy together. President Yilat Luzon and I represented our club to join the first Hong Kong local chapter under the Rotary Actions for Peace. We have formulated various joint peace builder service projects, including online calls for non-violent communications, community peace building camp, mindfulness throughout work. Furthermore, through our district, we're moving forward to an international collaboration to shape peace together via virtual platform and Rotary Peace Group. And for the planet, uh, Preserve Planet Earth, PPE in short, 
We are so proud to have you, Henry, an international climate change and clean energy expert to be our PPE director. Under your leadership, our Rotary Cup is being recognized as a green cup and we adopt the green policy. Reduce, reuse and recycle in our regular meetings and activities. Moreover, we have school environmental projects to raise awareness of the environmental protection among teenagers. We are also going to participate in tree planting, beach cleansing, no plastic campaign and district PPE forum. Sustainability and clean energy will definitely be our way forward in the context of PPE. And Harry, I'm looking forward to your postcard sharing in climate change and clean energy. Thank you, uh, Sally. Wow, that's a really ambitious uh, program and, and very impressive work you, are, you and your club are doing. And, and I'm very glad to support it. How do you see healthcare institutions globally now seizing the initiative for change through international collaboration? Right, Henry. Medical field is rapidly evolving industry. And what we are practicing nowadays are evidence-based medicine. In general, medical professions are keen to collect data collaboratively to conduct research. Over the past two decades or so, there was tremendous increase in multi-center, cross-national clinical research paper published in the literature. With a sound clinic questions and well-studied design, the conclusions drawn from this paper are generally more valid and we could translate the result better from research to daily clinical practice. Changes are therefore implemented by the International Task Force Review and Guidelines. Apart from the clinical research, the international collaboration is multidimensional from genetic studies, basic molecular scientific research, disease pathogenesis, use of advanced technology in diagnosis and treatment, as well as invention of new drugs. Take COVID-19 pandemic as an example. There is a breakthrough international collaboration between scientists, microbiologists, epidemiologists, clinical doctors, pharmacists, and engineers all over the world. International scientists and microbiologists could decode the viral RNA genome within a few weeks' time, which make a rapid diagnostic test possible. Epidemiologists collaborate with the WHO to provide the most updated epidemiological data, which allow us to know more about the route of transmission, clinical features for enhanced surveillance, risk protections, and contact tracing. A number of multi-centered clinical trials were conducted using different drug strategies to treat those with severe infection. Infectious disease experts are joining together to give the updated recommendation and pretend preventative measures. Potential vaccines are now in different phases of clinical trial. Engineers are working together to design simplified airway pressure machines for respiratory support and to build a large-scale well-equipped isolation facility for potential community outbreak. Wow, that's really impressive program. Thank you very much, Sally. Thank you, Sally. And so next up, we are very honored to have uh, somebody I've known for a few years. Uh, amongst other things, he's an expert in commercializing really worthy, uh, important, future-looking healthcare initiatives. Uh, Nick Northcott from uh, Sydney, Australia. Nick is a partner in Chrysalis Advisory, Executive Director in Mediation, and Executive Chairman of Udemon Technologies. Welcome, Nick. It's great to see you. Thank you, Simon, and uh, great to, to be on the show with uh, or the podcast with everybody and really nice to hear your stories, Sally. <laughs> so, Nick, can you give us an overview of you, your career and what you focus on today? Yeah, thanks, Simon. I'll start at the beginning and end at where I am today. There's a bunch of titles and roles there and people are probably wondering what they actually mean. Um, 
So I started off with a psychology and business degree and I started actually working in the social services sector in the Australian government. So working with people really in need who, um, for example, might be on the unemployment queue or have a disability. And it's, it's shaped my career and my life by having an understanding of the experiences of those people in need. Um, I then moved into more of a corporate career and I traveled and lived in a few different places, including the US and, and predominantly the UK, but also Europe. And, and really worked as a consultant in, in a big global consultancy, uh, work, working to understand, uh, I guess, how to support individuals, teams, and organizations to be effective. And that's everything from procurement supply chain optimization to people change management through to financial diligence um, and the people side of transactions as well. Um, and uh, after many moons of being away, I decided I wanted to come back to Australia. The lifestyle is too good. And uh, the full of family was there. And I did an MBA. And I started to question what I was doing being a consultant. I had a, a crisis of conscience, if you will. And I went and wanted more purpose in what I was doing. So I went and ran uh, the business side of a, a medical research institute, the Telephone Kids Institute in Perth. And um, from there, it really lit a fire under me in terms of the opportunity to innovate and commercialize technologies. And so I decided to um, you know, unleash the entrepreneur within myself and since then have uh, either started a number of ventures or, or joined a number of ventures. So today I um, am partner in, in, in Chrysalis and we, we work with a number of leading tech companies, whether they be biotech or um, infection control businesses or medical devices. Um, and two of those that you pointed out, uh, one of those is Udemon Technologies, where we're commercializing um, things in the sexual health and well-being space. And you mentioned the AIDS crisis, and we're uh, innovating the, the next medical devices in that space. Uh, and, and also Immediation, which is an online tech legal technology company. So a little bit outside of the healthcare space, but also uh, using those same skills of commercializing technologies. So that's a snapshot, Simon. Wow. And let's dive a little bit deeper. So what, what would you say are the key health or, or medical commercialization related issues you're, you're involved with today? You've mentioned Udemon, but what sort of issues are you really focusing on today? Yeah, I mean, I can talk about, uh, I guess, what's happening right now in the world. And Sally alluded to some of these things where, you know, we've got a global world, yet our borders to some extent have shut. And so we've, we've done a great job, all the consultants of thinking about supply chains and optimizing those supply chains. So, you know, for example, I, I'm, I'm involved in a, a business that has a predominant manufacturing facility in North and South America and getting product for infection control to Europe, Middle East, Africa, Australia can be challenging. So there are, there are definitely supply chain issues for the medical industry. There's also challenges around how do we accelerate the process of translation? We're fantastic at discovery research and we, we generate a lot of knowledge, but how do we take that knowledge and how do we turn that into actionable insights, whether that be, for example, you know, sequencing a huge amount of um, genomes and then being able to understand and pick through that to understand where the real value is to, to maybe get the next drug candidate that might be relevant for a vaccine or for uh, another drug. Um, so, so how do we do that? How do we get the collaboration to work together cross-border? How do we also find the right capital inflows and outflows and capital structures to support those activities? Um, that's, that's another thing. 
probably the biggest thing I, I would be concerned about is being keeping the quality of our data and keeping the quality of our evidence as we speed up the process to deal with the demand in such a consumerized world right now. Uh, people want things instantaneously. Um, so how do, we, how do we deal with the desire to speed up what typically is a very long process to bring a drug candidate or a device to market, yet not lose that focus on quality and going through the regulatory process? Wow, a lot of, a lot of things there. And so how do you see specifically the East and the West working better to collaborate and bring about more successful health-related commercialization outcomes? How do you see that happening? Yeah, there's a few things there. I think intellectual property is really important. I know some people talk about the fact that, you know, patents shouldn't be there to, you know, help large drug companies commercialize and make profits. But those capital markets and the ability to protect that intellectual property, to be able to utilize that to give a return to investors supports that very large investment in future drug development and device development. Uh, I also think exactly what Sally said before, have we got the right mix of where investment is going to in terms of prevention versus treatment and cure? And to some extent, I think there's a real opportunity between East and West to learn from each other. And there are a lot of things in terms of traditional medicine, in terms of alternative approaches to the full sense of health that we haven't really tapped into. And I think if we can engender a greater opportunity to learn about how things are done in different places, I think that will spark ideas and allow opportunities to innovate. Well, thanks, thanks so much, Nick. There were great answers. Thank you. No, that's uh, that's very very important answer, Nick. And uh, moving on, Sally, how how do you? What are your top two to three priorities for healthcare led changes going forward? And what? Why do you see that? So from a certain perspective, my top priority in healthcare-led change would be the use of robotics and artificial intelligence in combined endoscopic and surgical procedures. It was common in the past to say big surgeon, big wound, which in this is very traumatic to the patient with long incisions and scar. So with the advancement in technology, minimal invasive surgery using laparoscopic instruments has become the gold standard in management of surgical disease. Patient experience less pain and faster recovery with small wound. With the aging populations and longer life expectancy, we are now seeing more and more complex surgical patients nowadays. For instance, in um, the gastrointestinal cancer, elderly patients with multiple comorbidities may not be able to tolerate the long surgery with under general anesthesia. With the application of AI technology, an early diagnosis could be made and elderly could be benefited from less invasive treatment using the new robotic endoscopic platform. So another great interest for me in the revolution healthcare change is the clinical nutrition and the intestinal microbiota. The intestinal microbiota, or simply we call it a human gut flora, referred to are all the microorganisms, including bacteria, virus, fungus, and protozoa that live in our digestive tract of humans. And there are three trillions of them in our body. We know very little about this flora and its dynamic natures until recently we gained new insight from two large-scale human microbiome project hosted by the U.S. National Institutions of Health and also through the European Commissions. Apart from generating essential nutrition to, to us, the human microbiota perform essential functions to contribute to the physiology, metabolism, and immunology of the host. 
we describe this biological relationship as symbiosis. And keeping the balance of this ecosystem with diversity of microorganisms is the key. Taking obesity as an example, there's a strong evidence that the gut flora in the obese individual is altered, which allows more fat and caloric contents to be extracted and absorbed in, in the body. So simply, the take-home message is that we are living mutually with many microorganisms, which are important for our health and survival, despite we cannot see them. Um, public health, as mentioned before, um, is uh, absolutely will be my one of the top priority. So we nowadays are talking a lot of about infectious disease during the pandemics. What's more imminent concern in the coming decade is a climate change-related health issue. We cannot underestimate the effects of extreme climate change on human health. Last year, the widespread bushfire in the Australia with thousands north of wildlife animals served an early warning to us. Global warming with greenhouse gases, extreme heat wave, flooding, droughts, rise in the sea waters and air pollution, all this could be very devastating to our mankind if we don't take the action now. No, that's very, very important point, Sally, and I, I really agree with you that climate change is a global issue. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again, Sally. So, so back to Nick, what, what, what should, do you think, should be the top two to three priorities globally to expedite cutting-edge health commercialization outcomes? Great, great question, um, Simon. So I, let's tackle this from a, uh, maybe an economic perspective first. Uh, if I was to ask, say, someone like uh, Professor Tony Oakley, my friend at the University of Wollongong about this, he would talk to me about the impact of investing in education in early childhood. And uh, the Heckman equation, if you're familiar with that, the long-term effect of investing in early, early childhood education in terms of the health of nations is significant. So in terms of that, I think we should be investing in teaching children early about preventative health and about the pathway of translation of research into um, opportunities. And when I say children, I mean at a young age, but also coming out of high school and coming into university, we need to be building upon that education so people know what the pathway is. How does this happen? And there's great examples of that, like um, the Spark program coming out of Stanford, global mm. community, people are working together to translate medicines and, and devices. The second thing I think that's really interesting is the explosion of real world evidence and real world data. And so the use of you know, devices and various other uh, tools to collect more information that can support not only traditional clinical trial data, which is curated with you know, the, the randomized clinical trial is the gold standard of, of data, but pairing that with other real world evidence to give a fuller picture of, of, of that over the longitudinal term. That's the, that's the second piece. Um, the third piece, I think, would be global harmonization. So thinking about the regulatory process across you know, the, the CE mark in Europe or the US FDA or the Australian TGA, um, as someone who's commercializing into a global market, it, doing the regulatory work doesn't fill me with glee, Simon and, and, and colleagues. Uh, if it was more harmonized, uh, that would certainly be helpful. Um, and I think similarly, a greater patent um, enforcement and protection in, in all of the relevant big global markets, I think would be helpful. Well, that's wonderful. My watch said that I did 46,000 steps yesterday because I did a charity walk and then I did seven, I had 7.25 hours of deep sleep last night. So this works. <laughs> well done. Thank you. Well done. 
that's impressive. And that's really good charity work. Uh, now back to Sally. How do you see uh, healthcare organization in the East and West collaborating better globally? Oh, that's a very important question. Um, from my point of view, there are several aspects to collaborate better between the East and the West. Mm -hmm. Firstly, is the openness in the real-time big data and teleconference as echo with a NIC. Um, so with introduction of 5G network nowadays, essentially the lag time in data information exchange is minimal. The positive uh, impact of having global big data in healthcare could be huge, ranging from disease prevention, diagnosis, treatment with life-saving outcomes. So moreover, the East-West collaboration could be improved with the use of teleconference. Expert panels from various countries could hold regular online meetings um, with um, um, experience sharing and conduct clinical researches in a long-term basis. International conferences could be organized with thousands of delegates participate through the hybrid virtual and physical platform. Education material could be more readily available with more collaborative opportunities in the healthcare professional training program, which is definitely attractive. Whereas at a higher level of East-West collaboration will be on the healthcare system. Apparently the existing healthcare system are quite different between the East and the West. The reason behind are multifactorial, including the government healthcare policy, funding, public or private insurance system, availability of the trained medical expertise and professionals, application of information technology, social and cultural beliefs. When facing a common global health threat like what we're experiencing now with the COVID-19 pandemic and the foreseeable climate change with the health disease, we need a better high level collaboration to formulate a robust global health and response system to stay ready and react quickly. So to take a step further, there are still a number of developing countries with substandard primary health care. East-West collaboration to provide better quality of care in developing countries will be another big challenge ahead. Lack of clean water and electricity in the poor countries make this situation even more complicated. Raising global funds and enhancing global healthcare network with humanitarian service provider like Medicine Sanvontis and Rotary International could help to tackle the situation. Wow, that's really impressive. And I, I think, I hope they will succeed because that's really important. Thank you, Sally. Oh, I agree. And so finally, Nick, how do you think the West could learn from the East in terms of health commercialization and vice versa? Thanks, Simon. I think there's a, there's a number, so many ways. Uh, I think from a manufacturing point of view and a scale up, uh, I mean, what what the West can learn from places like China and India in being able to just rapidly scale solutions to get to large populations. I think there's an enormous amount that we can learn in that, in that sense. Uh, I think from the, maybe the West to the, the East to the West, equally, I think some of the rigor and process around things like the way that clinical trials are run and the, the, the system, the healthcare system, how it's organized, and I think there's definitely opportunities for, for understanding across both those areas. Um, I think in, in, in some of the, uh, the East, there's, there's great uh, harmonization in technology. And we look at things like electronic medical records and the ability to have um, you know, a reach in and out of the data that you need really a lot more seamlessly um, 
often in more uh, established with places in the West where there's a history, um, where there's a system that's been built on system over system, it's, it's often quite difficult to unpick that. So the ability to understand how things happen in, in different environments, I think is a great opportunity uh, for, for both uh, the East and the West. But no, they're I getting agree. close every day, I think, Simon, you know? I agree. And I, I've had firsthand experience when I lived in Australia, in Perth, same as you, I represented a big pharmacy chain, a West Australian pharmacy chain. And we had three years of uh, negotiation with uh, a pharmacy chain in Hubei province, Wuhan. And so I spent time over there. And um, <clears throat> initially, we thought that they were looking for the products. They were looking for us to export products from Australia to China. But it became clear after two years of negotiation, that what they were really looking for was to bring in some of the Western um, customer service rigor to their retail outlets. So it was very interesting to see how the mindset was. And uh, so that was wonderful. Thanks, Nick. My pleasure. Uh, really interesting also sharing from Nick and from Simon and also from Sally. Thank you to, 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 to our two guests, particularly Sally and Nick. I think this is wonderful that the work you are doing in the healthcare, in medical area, is really, really important uh, during this time of COVID. And, and it will be also critical looking ahead after recovery from COVID and also in tackling climate change. And, and this is, you know, thank you so much for sharing your very insightful comments today. And I'm sure we've really, Simon, I really enjoy it, I'm sure that our listener and our viewer, when we launch these videos and the podcast globally, they will be really keen to learn from you both. So thank you very much. Absolutely. And yeah, I just, in closing, I just want to reiterate that. And, and there's quite significant attention already to this podcast series. We were published in Irish Tech News yesterday online. And I know we have some real interest in China uh, and here in Europe. So um, it's great for you to be able to share your collective global wisdom connecting West and East. And, and we hope that the, those of you who tune in and watch and listen to these podcasts, you, re you really get a lot of information out of them. So thanks very much, Sally. Thanks very much, Nick. And, and thanks again, Henry. Thank you, everybody. And thank you, everybody. Really enjoy. And thank you, Simon. Really enjoy co-hosting this with you. Likewise. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.